You come to me on the day of my daughter's wedding to record a podcast. Why didn't you come to me earlier? This is one of my favorite movies. Well, Justice, if that's what you want, that's what you'll get in a good episode. Welcome to Film is Lit. How'd you like that opening? That was good. Lord, yeah? Yeah, that, I'm it, sorry I didn't come prepared. Don't patronize me. That was, I'm working on my impression. But yeah, welcome to Film is Lit, the podcast where we take a piece of literature and compare and contrast it to its film or TV adaptation. My name is Danny. I'm the film expert, self-appointed. And I'm Laura, the literature expert. Also self-appointed, but <laughs> yeah. I consider you an expert. And today is a very special episode, another guest episode. He started out as my brother's friend and is now my friend as well. Um, and maybe by the end of the episode, my friend as well. Probably not. <laughs> TBD. <laughs> probably, most likely not. But yeah, today on the pod, we have Charlie Reichenbach. Charlie, say hello. Hello, hello. Your intro, it makes me feel a little bit ashamed of my own Marlon Brando impressions. I'll, I'll be honest, I, I generally default to like Superman, which is a little bit easier where it's just that, <laughs> hello, Kalel, you are my son. It's a pleasure talking to you in this fairly robotic voice. Yeah. Well, I, I'm. are you saying that my impression is good? I don't know <laughs> in, in regards to quality, but you know, I, I, uh, I appreciate the effort and the attempt. Um, I guess just to introduce myself quickly, I am your, I was uh, the best man in your brother's wedding, which is probably most of the context I know you through. But then I can't even remember, I think, I think that you've become one of the people I'm most actively involved in Instagram messaging with. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I suppose a horrifying reality to share, but uh, it's, it's, it is mine. Uh <laughs> Austin. Um, so your your old hometown and stomping ground and uh, or at least, you know, 30 miles east of your old home stomping ground. And I'm here. I'm married. I have two kids. So this is taking a solid chunk of my me time. I hope you appreciate appreciate my, my knowledge and compassion of <laughs> what I'm sharing out with the world today. Yeah, I'm surprised that being a father of two kids, one of them a baby, you decided to cover a three-hour movie, um, but which is which is funny. But hey, I'm all for it. I, I love The Godfather. And we really appreciate you being with us. Yes. Oh, oh yeah. Let's make that clear. I think you've got it wrong. The joy was that it was three hours and that I, I could watch. <laughs> oh, I guess when we have kids, we'll understand. Right. <laughs> But yeah, we just have similar tastes in movies. And even when we disagree, we have compelling conversations about it a lot, which is something that I value. And I remember you might have half jokingly said you wanted to be on the pod, but I fully was like, nope, you're on now. You, you, you're in too deep. You're, <laughs> we scheduled you, dude. So you're coming on. It, it was, uh, I, I think I made the comment, I, I can't remember what the movie was that you'd reviewed, um, but I, I jokingly said, well, when you get around to doing like Emma or something like that, just let me know. I, I have some thoughts on Bill Nye and his ridiculous. <laughs> and you're like, um, taken already. Sorry, not available, but you're on the schedule. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was a very popular episode. We had a couple people ask if they could cover yeah. that. And I just felt like out of allegiance to my old professor I had to give that to him but we, we could cover it again to be honest I have more to say about it 
yeah, Bill Nye is one of the greats, past and present and future. But yeah, let's get into The Godfather, a small little movie, not well known, uh, <laughs> just getting widely regarded to be one of the greatest movies ever made next to Citizen Kane. Whether you believe that or not, it has that legacy. And I certainly, it, it's funny, I feel like for a lot of film takes, I'm pretty basic. Because I, I think Citizen Kane and this movie truly are the two greatest movies ever made. Uh, maybe not my personal favorite. They're in my top 100. But in terms of just, you know, their legacies and what they did for Hollywood. Yeah, this is yeah. Uh, pretty monumental. It's always interesting that they get grouped together because they're both such great movies. But Citizen Kane was revolutionary, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. There were a ton of gangster movies before this one. There are, this was like, if anything, I, I think Francis Ford Coppola really didn't want to necessarily do a gangster film to start with until he thought about, well, oh, can I tell this is an allegory for an American experience? And that's sort of the rendition and the take he took. I think actually uh, many of the producers, when they were talking about this movie, wanted to update it and bring it into the 70s and 80s as a story. And he was very much against that. So I, I, I'm very excited to get into this. It is... It is beyond iconic. I think it's one of those movies that's, you know, you can tell it was shot on film. You can tell that it was shot with some natural lighting. There's definitely some studio scenes, but extras, I, I don't know how many extras are in the wedding, but it has to be north of like 300, 400. It's just a massive, massive under. Yeah. And yeah, just uh, there are very few films that, that feel as all-encompassing in three hours as this one. Agreed, for sure. Well, what was your first time watching, if you remember, Godfather, or what was your first exposure to this story? I think I think everyone gets exposed to it before they watch it, at least in contemporaries of our age. You know, bada bing. Uh, you know, <laughs> there's just uh, there's little bits and cultural references that are peppered through our experiences and that we get before we really take it in. But I can tell you the first time I watched it in a concerted way was probably like at age 15. And it was probably not fully on the approved uh, watching list. And I watched it in snippets because it was on TNT. Um, so I got what I would describe as the 75% violence turned down a little bit version. I remember watching it again when I was in my early 20s and seeing like Clemenza actually pulling off some of the executions towards the end of the movie and being like, oh, that was that makes a lot more sense without the middle cutout. <laughs> so yeah, I think, I think that was my first exposure to it. And I've probably watched it 20, 30 times since then. Wow. Yeah. So yeah. And I've, I've actually read the book twice. I have a very un uh, controversial approach in thinking that the movie is both a departure and an improvement from the, uh, the original book. Wait, uh, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's an understatement there. Uh, yeah. Well, this may be shocking, but as a cinephile, I didn't actually watch this movie until my freshman year of college. I had been exposed to it before. I'd seen snippets on TV. Obviously, I knew the horse head in the bed scene. I knew, gonna make it an offer you can't refuse. All that stuff. But... Hadn't watched it because, and this is a thing with me, with like ultra classic movies, sometimes since I know they're considered classics, I know I won't be, like there's no probability that I won't like it. And because there's no thrill to that, you know, I, I, I don't 
watch it or I push off watching it. But then I had to watch it for screenwriting one class in college and I actually sat down to watch it from start to finish. And it was one of those moments where I'm like, why did I push this off? This is the, the Godfather is the Godfather of movies. You know, like what could I have gained by waiting for so long? So yeah, I watched it for the first time in college. My love for Al Pacino grew exponentially. I obviously knew he was a great actor, but after seeing him in one of his earlier roles, I'm like, wow, this guy is this guy is something else. So I became a huge Al Pacino fan through watching it in college. And yeah, I went back to this movie a couple times for different papers throughout college. Not because it was easy to write about this movie, but it was, well, it was easy, but there's so much to pull from. And I'd find out so much uh, more about the movie, something new every time I watched it that I could just, you know, pull these papers out of my out of my butt you know because I'm not I'm good at physical production but writing was something that I uh, I'm not as strong at but I use this movie as kind of a a cheat code to create some pretty good papers Um, yeah so we'll love this movie I've probably seen it 10 times um, maybe a little bit more but yeah I read the book for the first time for this podcast listen to it Johnny Fontaine uh, read it. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, we, we don't even need to. Well, well, we'll have to get into it. But the Johnny Fontaine expanded Hollywood set, uh, Vegas set. Yeah. Perhaps one of the strangest departures, I would say. And um, I don't, I'd assume that it made it into zero of the script, but it certainly didn't make it into the finished movie in any meaningful way, which is fantastic. And it's very funny. It, I think there was actually a strong objection when the book came out. and It was very popular from certain people that felt like they were being mocked by the book. In particular, I think we can all think of one perhaps songbird that, that might be a little bit upset with his representation in this movie. Definitely. And, uh, you know, Mickey Blue Eyes was none too pleased with how he, he was uh, showcased in the book. I think he was significantly happier with the movie, but... It was also a much smaller role. Which, in our opinion, was the right decision. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Let, let's So, yeah, read the book, uh, listened to the book for this podcast, had a tough time getting through it. Although the story itself, which Francis Ford Coppola and I guess Mario Puzo for the screenplay shored up for this movie, uh, was still there. So I admired that the original framework was there. And as much as I didn't like the departures in the novel, I, I can't deny that the the skeleton, the story there, Mario Puzo should be praised for. Everything else is kind of like, yikes, especially in today's woke political times. But yeah, that's uh, tough, tough to get through the book. Okay, Lore, for sure. go ahead. Well, I have a very short story. I watched the movie for the first time a couple nights ago. So the most exposure I have had to The Godfather is sort of its legacy in popular culture outside of the actual movie. And I think something that I kind of want to talk about is one of my favorite nods to The Godfather, which is Arrested Development, (laughs) (laughs) which I can probably word for word recite every single episode of. And so when I came across the links between this story and Arrested Development, I was like, oh, I get it. (laughs) Like, I feel like Arrested Development was sort of my gateway into (laughs) 
the yeah. Godfather, which is so funny. Um, it's funny that you started with a reference first. It, well, yeah. yeah. And I feel like maybe a lot of people who aren't cinephiles have that experience. And people of our age who are a little bit younger, who weren't around when the movie did come out, have the same experience. I'm not sure. But really, this was the first time I saw the movie. This is the first time I read the book. I don't think I'll ever read the book again. Like Charlie, I'm surprised that you've read it twice. I read it a while ago, anticipating it would be good. Yeah. Then I felt like I had to reread it for this podcast. And that reconfirmed that it, it indeed is um, the skeleton of the story is there. That's for sure. There, there's yeah. actually very little that changes beat for beat in terms of the main structure. But man, some interesting adventures. Yeah, there's just a lot about the book that just didn't have to be in there that really detracted from the overall story, the overall themes. Yeah. And I'm glad that Coppola got his hands on it and dug in in the way that he did. Cause I think he sort of like raised what needed to come out of the book. <laughs> and, and then like you were talking about with Frank Sinatra, like really downplayed a lot of the stuff that detracted completely. Like, and in fact, this is something that I had in my head because of popular culture portrayals of the movie. But I actually thought that the horse head was kind of the climax of the entire movie. Like I, that's what you see, right? Like in the Simpsons and Arrested Development, like there's always that horse head in the bed bit. And so I just thought that that was like the end of the whole movie. And then reading the book and then watching the movie, I was shocked that that's literally just one example of how far reaching the Godfather's power goes. Like I, that was kind of a surprise to me. So this kind of was all about correcting what I thought The Godfather was and actually bringing it into what it actually is, which was interesting. I don't know. Like, I, I feel like I might have a couple hot takes about this movie. because The movie? Yeah. I, well, I, I don't want to get <laughs> no, too okay. far into no. it, but I, I just feel like... That's what this podcast is all about, baby. <laughs> <laughs> but like with you, I just, I think I had it on a pedestal. And, and so yeah. watching it, maybe it didn't live up to that. Yeah, that's... Expectation, unfortunately, but it was enjoyable. Yeah, we can talk about it well, further. I, I've talked about how I do this, where I put movies, I have such high expectations for certain projects that it, the movie itself can't help but not live up to that. Sure, and I also had the Arrested Development bar. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that's just a personal thing. <laughs> well, the, the horse head scene could be considered the climax of Act 1. Oh, right? definitely. And it shows... That's what's so great about the movie is that there is no exposition to the describing the family. You n learn everything about the family through the wedding scene, the opening 30 minutes, all through visual cues and what the characters say in the moment. There is no point where a character steps aside and takes a moment to be like, our family is in the mob, and if we don't get what we want, we do this. It's mm -hmm. like, no, it's all visual. The movie producer doesn't give Johnny Fontaine the part, uh, and then they kill his horse. And then, okay, message received. Um, right. I think that's mostly fair. I think at the wedding, there is a fair bit of exposition from Al Pacino, though, in terms of describing the old band leader story and made him an offer that he can't refuse. There's like, maybe it's not direct, but he's like, He's a very scary person. In some ways, I actually like that the the construction's so natural that it doesn't feel like exposition. It just feels like social commentary at a half hour of a wedding. You know? Yeah. There's something beautiful about that. Yeah. 
And I guess the more obvious visual metaphor is that the family business is keeping Don away from the business of family. That's the, you know, it's like he is keep, keeps on looking through the window at the wedding that's going on right outside, but he either is, is stuck inside granting these favors or is it keeps on being pulled away from that. And I, I think... The novel is strong in that it also opens with that and you kind of get exactly what's going on by these little vignettes of people describing their, their ailments or their woes and then the Don saying that he'll grant these wishes. And, you know, from that opening chapter, you kind of, everything is established from there. So the novel started out hot um, for me, mm-hmm. but then the biggest departure, which I wanted to talk about, and you already mentioned him earlier, Johnny Fontaine. So, Charlie, I wanted to get your take, if you had one, on why there is so much emphasis on this this singer, why Buzo goes into so many departures and detracts from the story. Do you have any takes on that? So, I think if you want to take it into account, there was like this morality tale that was being told of like, I don't know if it's Cain and Abel or what, what the reference Puzo was using, but in terms of like two very good singers, both from very close to this, this one center of power. And one was the good son. Yeah. Uh, he went out and, and is, has kept his life on the tracks. And the other one's a basically degenerate alcoholic who's got a failing liver. And there was supposed to be like this redemption angle and then approving that that tale is false in, in and of itself. And that they actually, he still dies. Um, I got blanking on his name from the book right now. Go Batalia. Yeah. Is that it? Yeah. Good memory. I think that's what they're going for, or I think that's what Puzo is going for, but he also spends 50 plus pages on it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's completely extraneous to the main thread around the family. We don't even need to get into the Lucy thread with the doctor, which is just ridiculous. That made me want to throw up. I just want to, yeah, that whole scene where like the doctor who's like, in a relationship oh, with her like yeah there's like there's doctor issues i mean he's obviously a little bit of a shady doctor he's out in vegas for a reason practicing medicine but i don't think he's portrayed that way there's all sorts of weird it's just a cringe narrative thread i, I think that's how i would put it um like super cringy but yeah you read through it yeah. and you're like oh I don't feel any better for having read this. I feel much worse. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I think like if you strip those away, I I guess it's it's one of those questions of like, did this man suffer from a lack of an editor? Was that was that what happened here? Mm -hmm. Maybe that's what happened. But I don't I don't have a Johnny Johnny Fontaine. Like they kept the the best part of that narrative right and used it as exposition for the family. I mean. By the time you actually get to the main motivator for the, the plot where we're actually we're actually in the olive oil factory and we're talking, or I guess I should say the 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 import export portion, not the factory. We don't get to the factory until the second movie. Uh, <laughs> you're, but you're actually sitting down there and you've you've got everyone sitting around and they're talking about entering the drug business for the first time. And that's that's where the movie, the actual plot of the movie starts. And we spent 45 plus minutes. 50 minutes, just long, slow plays, getting to know everyone in that room and other people that will come in later. Um, it's pretty incredible. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I can't get enough of, 
of that opening, especially the opening line, I believe in America and what the implications of that line and the slow pullout uh, of yeah. the camera and Gordon Willis's photography. He was the director of photography. It was pretty incredible. I did some research on his work and basically watching this the first time, I'm like, wow, this is very dark. They're, they're using a lot of high contrast and this seems like a big risk. And indeed it was back in that time, and even now these days, but especially back of just film and before computers, they would overexpose an image. So in post, they could go down and darken it if you want to, because you can't really do the, the reverse, right? You can't make a dark image brighter without it making it look grainy. Mm -hmm. But yeah. he, Gordon Willis, very intentionally shot it in these dark tones with high contrast on purpose. And... The image he shot was the image that they had to work with. Like that was the final image. They couldn't make it brighter in post, couldn't do any color correction in post. Wow. Like that was it. And it, it is so, it has this menacing beauty to it, especially in Don's office where it is so oppressively dark. And the only people that are lit really are the, are the Don and whoever he's talking to. And right. everything else is just jet black to elaborating thoughts on that it, you you talked a lot about the cinematography there you know that i think n almost every shot in this movie is shot from about four feet high there's everything is shot from first perspective at about four feet with the exception i think of one shot and i think that's the overhead shot of where they actually hit don corleone on on the street and you've got the oranges exploding off of the cart everywhere and the i i think this was actually like a I can't remember where I read this. This might actually be um, apocryphal, but I'm pretty sure it's true. So I'm going to say it. <laughs> There's this moment where he said it, where I guess the cinematographer and uh, Francis Ford Coppola were in an argument. He said, no, everything shot from first person advantage at four feet. He was like, no, but this is, this shots from God's perspective. So we'll, we'll just, <laughs> and I think that's, that's supposedly the line that he dropped in order to get it done. Interesting. That's, I didn't even, I didn't even think of that. That's, that's kind of incredible, that, that detail. And what I noticed this time around watching it was there's not a lot of establishing shots sometimes to kind of throw you into the uh, character's perspective. Like, like when Tom Hagen is kidnapped, the next time you see him, it just cuts to Solozzo and then Tom Hagen's there. And I'm like, wait, where are they? And it's like, oh, Tom Hagen doesn't know either. So we don't know. And that's kind of the brilliance of the storytelling there is that, you know, yeah. it, the cinematography matches what the characters are feeling or doing. Like when Michael decides to kill Solozzo and McCluskey, he sits down in the middle of the frame to visually tell you, I'm taking over now. Mm -hmm. Sonny isn't dead yet, but it's kind of a meta, you know, a, a foreboding metaphorical hint that like Michael's going to be the, in the center mm -hmm. now. So yeah, oh, gosh, the movie, I, I can't talk enough about the movie, but I want, I don't know if you had any other differences between the book and the movie that you uh, wanted to discuss. So I actually think one of the interesting things are you mentioned the opening dialogue, which is nearly identical between the two in terms of it's, it's place a little different, but the, the dialogue is very, very similar in terms of, uh, and I think he's he's disparagingly described in the novel and not in the book as the the uh, the undertaker as kind of the setup. And so you have a 
I think the interesting thing is that it's not it's not often that you start with a ancillary character to really establish your movie in that way with a long soliloquy. That's much more of a something borrowed from you know, traditional play or, or stage production, right? Where you might have some opener or somebody that comes in from time to time to just do some long expository piece. But so much of the book is how you're supposed to feel about someone before they actually say anything. Like short, fat, brutish, brooding, stupid, unintelligent, uh, belligerent. Uh, there's just like, everyone has five adjectives attached to them before they open their mouth. And so it's just a very different way of setting up and and thinking about a person. I, I also just, what's so interesting to me is that while the movie is this like crisp, incredibly clean, narratively paced beautifully, the book's a mess. It is. You look at the movie, which is so clean narratively, and it just, it's sort of a wonder that, that they're they're the same story. Uh, but they are, they really are. I completely yeah. agree. Yeah, <laughs> I when I was reading the book, there were so many times where I felt like a character was going to be important. For example, Johnny Fontaine, we've talked about him already, but there were so many times where I was like, okay, this has to lead somewhere. And it just didn't. And I was frustrated that I felt like there was so much that I wanted to learn about other things. Like, but it just was taken away by like storylines that I didn't feel were important. Um, and the movie cleaned it up so nicely. And I agree, like when you were talking about Johnny Fontaine being used as like a narrative piece to sort of push things along, I completely agree. I think like, I don't know how Francis Ford Coppola went into the book and mined for those things, but he did it. And I think, yeah, it made the movie a lot more streamlined. Even if you take someone like Fredo, like Fredo is a tragic character in the movie. And it becomes much more tragic over time. In the book, he's like a clown. He doesn't get like nearly enough credit. He goes he goes from being a clown to like um, a, a playboy in the second half, and not in like a not in like a tragic character format. Not in anything that like John Cazal could dig into. Like if you if you presented him and had him play that character, he probably would have said, "No, I'm I'm not doing this. This is this is well below my my grade." But you know, just by twisting some of the, I actually think that. I could be wrong on this. I think Fredo might have a larger role in the movie than he does in the book. So if you actually think about what the light comes up on a little bit, that that does as well. Like if you think about the book, the book spends so much time with Tom Hagen and so much time prior to the actual assumption of control of the family. And that's just a completely different balance uh, in terms of where it spends its time. And I think that it's all for the better. I don't think there's... I'm trying to think if there's anything that's dropped from the book that I'm upset about. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, well, yeah, I I know that the movie adds the scene when the Don wakes up and he's at home after being shot. And then Fredo says, like, I'm going to go to Vegas and, you know, learn the, you know, the casino business. In the book, he's so petrified from the assassination attempt that he goes into hiding and you don't hear about him again until like the final couple chapters of the book when they're, you know, at Vegas and then then it goes to Michael's uh, reign. I think a way like they did that with Luca really well. I think that if they had if the if Puzo had really focused on Luca and done a bait and switch, which he did, but he did that with so many other characters, like if he had focused all of that energy of writing 
Luca's background and describing like even giving Luca like a couple more things to do before he was killed and like really leaned into that and then like after him dying like that was a total surprise to me and I really liked it and I almost wish that it had been drawn out a little bit more so I could have enjoyed that kill a little bit more (laughs) because that was really shocking and like in the movie that was so intense for me and oh my gosh and the way that they like added him like stabbing him in the hand to make sure that he like couldn't he literally physically couldn't even like twist around that was so gross and so intense but like so good (laughs) oh and it was like they you know they set that up perfectly they said he's very good with a knife right like that's one of the lines that they start with in the introduction in the yeah business they're like oh yeah and you know it actually comes true the things that they got rid of with luca brazzi i'm like not that upset about, I guess, some of the, de- I, you're right, like, would it have been great to have some of those awful details about him, like, revealed, and maybe it morally colors it a little bit more, but, like, there is some really messed up stuff about Luca that gets revealed well after he's dead, which is just, like, horrifying. I don't know if we need to get into it necessarily in this format, but, like, the whole thing with his child and killing his own child. Yeah. The way in which he goes about it is like, uh, I don't know. Yeah, I completely forgot about that. <laughs> a 12 out of 10 on the X scale. Um, so I don't know. That's that's my own my own perspective. But yeah, no, I totally forgot about that. <laughs> I yeah. Yeah, that, could... that was something where I was reading it and it was so horrifying that at first I thought it was a fake story as if there it was a lie. But as it continues, you realize, oh no, this is actually happening. At that point in the book, though, that was kind of like par for the course. It was so icky and cringy where I'm like, okay, here's just another <laughs> thing to add to the pile of, of ickiness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the I'm sure you're aware of of this fun fact, but the guy who played Luca Brazzi, Lenny Montagna, is his name. Uh, he was the fun fact. I don't know if this is true, but it seems to be true is that he was so nervous to act against Marlon Brando that he was messing up his lines. And in the movie, the Luca Brazzi, he can't speak clearly and he's messing up his speech. And apparently that what he wasn't supposed to do that, but it was, that was kind of a a fluke, a mistake that Coppola was like, this actually works. It even contributes to the Don's character even more. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's kind of, that was kind of a a sweet little thing that's in the movie that makes his death a little hit a little harder because he was just so nervous to talk to, talk to the Don. guy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if you actually like the Luca Brazzi in the movie, even though there's this awful story about the band leader, is actually like a fairly super loyal, very like intimidated, uh, you know, very cares deeply for for Don Corleone. And then like, so that's 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 a pretty sympathetic character to kill off, right? And in a very surprising way. Um, if you had all of the other details, you almost have like a Breaking Bad type character where you're like, am I a Man, I think the answer is no, um, but I've spent a lot of time following them around in this movie, so I guess that's my protagonist for this moment. Oh, well. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you have that play of whether you like this character or not through the whole story, and I think that obviously comes through a lot with The Godfather as well, because he's sort of on this decline where he was on top of his game, and now he's becoming just this like sympathetic old man who's clearly having some health issues and then gets shot 
And miraculously, because of his experience, he doesn't die. But you kind of watch this successful man in his own field start to slip. And like, that is sad. Like, that is a tragedy that you have to watch. And then, of course, like, you learn later in the book and the movie that he wanted Michael to start to be that pivot for the family where like he came to America, he wanted to fulfill the American dream. He wasn't able to through legitimate forms. So he turned to this mob system that ended up working for him, but he still sort of like is striving to become that legitimate American dream. And so it is really sad that like he sees his son murdered and family members die and friends die and he's still reaching for that but like he dies before that comes into fruition and he has to watch Michael go through the same situation and that is like I think the what I found out mostly in in my research after like watching this was like even though this movie and the book is all about striving for the American dream. For the most part, it actually is an American tragedy. And I think that's like, that's the most compelling thing that I got out of this piece, because that's what a lot of people go through. Like they come to America, they think it's going to be one way and then it's not, and they're not able to realize that dream. So I think that's in every single character, you're watching them be terrible and murder people but at the same time like all they want is like a fair chance <laughs> right yeah the don said to michael i never wanted this for you yeah you're a senator a president yeah, yeah. Whoa, is Marlon Brando in the room? What? <laughs> oh, fun fact. I didn't say that. Did I, I? Maybe I said this when we were doing the Apocalypse Now episode, but I went to school with his granddaughter Whoa. and she was really nice, but I don't think I ever really met any of her other family members. I think her dad was Marlon Brando's son. I think that's how she was related, but. Whoa. Yeah, that, that conversation especially. Um, yeah, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. And then when he dies, like, It's really emotional. I feel like that's one of the most emotional parts of the movie is when he's playing with his his um, he's playing his grandson in this small garden tomato field. And he's just having a good time. He's enjoying the sun. He's enjoying the breeze. It's like he's finally made it to this time in his life that he has some peace. And then he has a heart attack and that's all taken away from him. Like, I think that's the most tragic part in part one for me. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I'm just thinking about like, this is a great example of like the visual comp- composition that we talk about. I can tell you like when The Godfather came out on DVD, my copy, like the the menu scene was literally that tomato garden with small flaps of burlap um, in between certain stalks. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's funny. It's funny what you remember from that scene. I have like a pastiche memory of it, like compiled over watching it many, many times. I remember him taking the orange pulp and turning it inside out to create fangs in his mouth to scare his grandson, Anthony. I know that the boy actor in that scene is is called Anthony because that's his actual name and they couldn't get him to respond to anything else but that on screen. <laughs> and he's chasing him around. And I, I, I found this out later. This is like the, one of the ways that you used to chase off bugs was they had this little smoke it's uh it's it's not fertilizer. I thought it was fertilizer originally. It's like a smoke like bug chasing machine from like the fifties that you used to be able to buy, which is cool. Terrible and full of chemicals. I was gonna say it's probably a hundred percent DDT. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's gotta be. Um, and if memory serves, like he's also running around in like blue and white striped overalls, like Oshkosh Bagosh style. 
but yeah, like like that's the that's the level of like visual memory you build up over time of of some of these scenes because they're just so iconic. They're just so well put together. Sorry, that's a that's that's probably more than than you wanted on that scene. Oh no, no, Give no, us that's more. no, that's one of my favorite scenes. Like yeah. I actually when he was doing the the orange rind in his mouth, it actually made me think of a memory that I had from my childhood of my grandpa doing that. Yeah. And I actually was like, I'm sure that that's something that people used to do, you know, like it's a silly thing and it's an easy thing because you put rinds in your mouth to eat the orange. But like, I'm like, did my grandpa get that from this movie? Like, where did that come from? Like it was, yeah, who knows? But like, it was such a moment of tender care for your grandchild. And again, like that's why it's so tragic that he dies in that moment because that's what he wanted his whole life. And, you know. Yeah. I actually wanted to chat a little bit about that tragedy piece because I think there's like this great nugget to it. Because if you if you look at like Michael Corleone should have had had the opportunity to have the American dream in every sense of the word. Mm-hmm. Went to college at Dartmouth, decorated American war hero, and in this in this presentation of familial loyalty versus pursuit of individuality, he leans back in, and is that. Is that a choice? Is that a mental model that he's created where it's just what basically drives him to make that choice? And it's never, I mean, it's, it, you know, if you go to like Godfather 3, he's like, just when I think I'm out, they pull me back in. And like, he creates all these own externalities that, that pull him in. But that's it's like a very tacit choice. Like you could go hang out in New Hampshire with Kay after, after dinner at the Ritz, right? Like he doesn't have to, he doesn't have to do anything else. And yes, there's the scene in the hospital with his, with his uh, father and his father's there all alone. He says, I'm with you now, pop. Right. And there, that's like, there, there's the cue in terms of what that means, but the tragedy is somewhat self-imposed for Michael. Yeah. I'm glad you brought this up because in the past, I've always viewed it as a full on tragedy, whereas Michael never wanted to be in the family business and he was pulled in literally through circumstance But as I watch it more, I start to pick up little cues. And now what I think is that Michael still, he didn't want originally to be in the family business. But I think deep down, he always knew that he either was going to be a part of it or he was going to take over in some capacity. And the reasons I believe this are is because in the beginning with the family photo at the wedding, Kay is outside. Kay is literally outside out of the picture and Michael pulls her in. But then the minute Michael learns that his father has been shot and is potentially dead, he goes into the phone booth and he then literally closes her out. Like he takes the door and slams it on her and she's peering in wanting to understand what's happening. But that was the first clue that Michael shows that he's like, my focus is on my father and not on Kay. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course, there's the obvious decision that he decides to kill Solozzo and McCluskey and, and leave Kay to go to Italy to hide out. But even when he comes back, he, he doesn't go back to Kay until a year in the movie. I think in the book, it's like six months, but in the movie, it's, it's a year. And Michael, he keeps on saying like, I need you, but not, he didn't, never says like, I want you. I think... Kay is needed for him to have a family and build a family. He might love her, but maybe not fully. And I just think through these subtle clues of him shutting Kay out in the beginning, and then when he comes back, their marriage is kind of more of a, a 
a uh, transactional. Yeah, transactional. Thank you. Yeah. Very strategic in that way. So to sum that up, um, I know I'm going on a long-winded speech here, but I think that it is tragic how his brother died and how he was pulled into it. But I do think there is a part of him that was always destined to become the Don. And I think he knew it too. That's kind of my... Well, the book definitely talks about fate a lot. Yeah. It mentions fate multiple times. And yeah, I think they created that fate because what they value is family. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. And I... Pacino's performance, I... So he, Brando took home the Oscar. Well, he denied the Oscar for uh, Best Actor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait, I don't know that story. Oh, well, 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 let's get into that. Yeah, yeah, we'll save that. Yeah, yeah, before we get into that, Al Pacino, Robert Duvall, and James Caan, they were all nominated for Best Supporting Actor, and Brando was nominated for Best Actor. It's funny that Pacino should have been nominated for Best Actor, Brando, Best Supporting, it was the other way around and Pacino was so mad that he boycotted the Oscars that year. He didn't even show up. James Caan and Duvall showed up. Uh, They didn't have a chance at winning, but yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think he's kind of completely right. Like Michael is the main character and Coppola made the decision that the wise decision to make his character the focus in the movie. Whereas the book, I, you know, it's kind of a 50, 50 split. I think between you know uh, the I, Don and Michael. Not to interrupt, but I think it's more like a fifteen fifteen split because they're so focused on all this morass of garbage. Outside. Yes, <laughs> like they spend hours and hours just way out in the hinterlands of the story. Um, so yeah, it's a fifteen fifteen split in my mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Coppola made the wise decision to focus on Michael and just one of the best performances of all time and in, in my opinion uh best actor performances let me rephrase the iconic scene of the assassination attempt when he gets the gun and he steps out and you you know that okay it's supposed to go down but he hesitates and goes off script and then sits back down and you're like oh shit and then that look in the eyes of what's going to happen like can i really go through this and the brilliance of that scene is that you as the viewer You want him to kill these men, but at the same time, you don't because you know that it could go wrong. You know that he could get caught. You know, he'd go to jail. So it's this crazy tension in there of what could happen. And it's all sold through Pacino's eyes. In watching that scene, I just remember like, okay, so they've introduced this as the train tracks, like near the elevated train tracks in the beginning. You hear like a little like a clickety clack, a clickety clack like as they're sitting down clickety clack as he goes into the into the bathroom to collect his weapon but they turn up that screeching sound of like an elevated train turning as as they and that's just like the brilliance of that sound design alone just for amping up the tension in a way that's not that's actually atmospheric and appropriate for it is incredible like whoever was doing that rather than playing like some music where it's like great choice, just incredible stuff. I think like Al Pacino is fantastic in this movie. James Caan, I think, plays his part so well. And if you keep on going down the line, like I know that a number of 
characters were very upset with how much of their actual content got cut. Uh, James Kahn was furious. He said he had like 45 minutes of content that got cut. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Um, and was complaining bitterly to the editor and, uh, you know, uh, basically cursing him out at the Oscars. You like, you son of a bitch, you cut out 45 minutes of my content. Like, yeah. But James Kahn, I don't know if you've seen any of his other work, like uh, Time. Elf. Uh, well, I mean, that's a, that's a little I'm kidding, bit. I'm kidding. Yeah, but um, but he's got um, oh god, what is it? The the it's not heist, it's thief. I think is the name of the movie where he yeah, Michael Mann's thief. Michael Mann's like first big movie, right? Where he's in thief and he's a professional thief, but he can play that crazy guy on the edge so well, just like so well, and just such like great. He's just got like an incredible physical danger to him that he just like executes like when he going and he establishes it so well in the beginning of the movie when he goes out to confront the photographers from the fbi and he takes the camera and he hurls it to the ground and then takes a couple dollars and just throws it that was all ad-lib none of that apparently was in the script um that's just him creating a physically terrifying human in that moment and he just close talks everyone everyone throughout the entire movie is like three inches away from their face, whether it's Clemenza or whether it's him, him coming up really, really close to like Fredo and some of the scenes or, you know, clapping, clapping, uh, you know, Al Pacino on the face and saying things like, Oh, look, look, they, they like punched you in the face and you got a little bit upset. It's just, there's this, uh, this intimidation and language of the physical language that he uses that just establishes himself as like this, manic guy who could do anything at any moment where he actually like physically beats his brother-in-law in the streets with like the fire hydrants going off with garbage can lids just insane stuff yeah yeah he, when he slaps michael you're taking it all very personally very yeah. personally yeah, i always <laughs> laugh at that yeah james Kahn really was perfect for the role he really exemplifies the hot-headed brute uh, really well. Uh, I definitely agree. I, I haven't seen enough of his past work. I've seen Thief, uh, but there are some others that, that I definitely need to check out. Uh, I, I think he's most well known, as Laura said, for Elf these days, outside of The Godfather, of course. But yeah, he, he's a great actor. And I like how each of the sons inherited a part of the Don in a way. Like uh, Sonny is the brute, the hot-headed brute. Fredo it kind of has the Don's childlike innocence, I guess, or like the magnanimous quality where, you know, how the Don, he he's in a dirty world, but he plays clean, I think is the quote I heard. Like as much as, as clean as you can play for uh, the head of the mob. Well, <laughs> of, he won't get into drugs, right? right? Yeah. yeah, and he won't, yeah. He has it, his own moral code. Yeah, he's, he's a moral code, which Michael, Michael inherited, inherits the cunning intelligence of, his father, but obviously is a little more brutal and fatalist towards the end. And so his intelligence leads to him ending out on top, you know, where all the other families fall. But at the same time, he becomes these. And that uh, incredible scene, sorry, when he's becoming the godfather to his nephew and oh, everybody's getting slaughtered. Oh, one of <laughs> incredible. the. Yeah, one of the greatest instances of cross cutting in a movie ever. It's this big crescendo and it, Michael has the alibi where he's in church while this happened and at, at the baptism and yeah, incredible. One of the best montages. Um, ever. Agreed. Yeah. Sorry. The, what's even better about that is, so you've got this like denial, this whole, this whole way that he can avoid responsibility for all of those killings. And then, you know, at the end of it, he goes home, 
with Carlo Rizzi. Um, I think the actor's name is uh, Gianni Russo, I think is the uh, is the actual guy who plays him, who is actually a, a real mobster. I believe he was like brought in by Columbo or something along those lines. So, but he's, uh, and he kills him. He kills him personally up close, not directly, but in front of him in that moment. So that's, um, if you actually look at the difference in the choice there of like killing everyone with this cross-cutting and deniability and then for something much more personal it's much closer love that <laughs> yeah michael yeah well that that's michael at the end but let's talk about his uh stint in italia or, or sicily yeah. uh to be more specific i think it's a little too long in the book uh, as most things are it's just too much time spent on something like yeah. let's it's funny how the Godfather seems so quick in comparison to the book when the Godfather's three hours, <laughs> but that's just the truth. His time in Italy, I believe they actually shot in Italy for the most part, if I'm not mistaken. Some of the landscapes might. I, I know there's some studio lot with some scenes, but you feel that authentic Italian Absolutely. setting, that presence. It's kind of perfectly paced in the movie because the whole point is that Michael is away and he might not ever come back and then that's hinted at when he marries Apollonia but then of course she's ripped from him I, I don't know if you want to talk about that stint in Italy Charlie well I think like and you mentioned in the book it's really meandery it doesn't seem like it's going anywhere it's not super purposeful the only thing that it actually you know what? I will say there's one thing that they, they don't include in the, this is the first thing that's in the movie or not in the movie, but is in the book that I would say I did appreciate is that. So Apollonia is murdered in Sicily, obviously by his, one of his two bodyguards whose names I'm blanking on. But in the book, that guy ends up in America in Buffalo at a pizza joint. And I think that's like one of the final last little bits of the, the of the book is, is Michael having him killed. And that's like, I kind of liked that. I liked that little bit of no, no, uh, no. It was a very clean ending to the, uh, a very dirty plot piece. Does that happen in the movie? No. no. That doesn't happen in the movie? Yeah, it's uh, uh, Fabrizio is his name. Fabrizio, yeah. Yeah. Oh. In the, in the movie, he just leaves right before the explosion and you never addressed again. Huh. Yeah. Just kind of okay. disappears out the side of the courtyard. Yeah. Looks back once, says, oh, this is not going as planned, and uh, and moves on. But great setting, great establishing shots. I, I think it, what you speak to is you're like, the setting feels very real because it is real. So much of the movie was shot in practical settings, whether it's like, it, there are a few there are a few things that are more obviously studio, like the Don's office and some of the house insides are, are shot uh, studio lot. And there's like clearly a secondary crew. I don't know if you can tell this, but they shoot all of the establishing shots at the very nice... Uh, with Waltz at his home around the pool. That is not, that is not those two guys. They're shot from like 50 feet away for a reason. That's crew number two cruising around Hollywood taking those shots. <laughs> but every, there's so much stuff that's practical, whether it's like even the Christmas tree stand where they're going to kill Tom Hagen when they're, when they're holding Tom Hagen and you're wondering what Solops is going to do with him. And it turns out it's like, it's actually a practical tree stand like outside in New York somewhere. And it's very clearly not a set or the bar where Clemenza is like, actually, they actually end up killing uh, on the side of the road. You can tell you're in like the flatlands of New Jersey. Like there's tons of practical stuff throughout the entire thing. And I just, I love that element of it. Yeah, I that's 
obviously you like to see practical locations in a movie because it adds to the realness the authenticity even the studio stuff i think they're kind of able to effortlessly blend it together wasn't that noticeable to me or or at least i'm so obsessed with the style the visual style that i'm more focused on that than the fact of like oh are they shooting at in a building or or on the studio so yeah do you have anything to say about italy at all um no i i guess i feel bad because i'm so new to the material that i don't have a lot more to add i just i feel like i'm learning more than i'm <laughs> contributing to this discussion no, no, no. but it's really interesting like i i'm here for it so i know that you had an issue with a lot of the uh female characters in the book yeah. and I, I must say apollonia they never say this is another thing about the book i think puzo more or less goes out of his way to hint that Apollonia is underage. Like he just keeps on hitting at her youth. Well, I was going to say with her character, I think we specifically hear her name like three times in the book. And I was very upset. I think you're totally right that he's suggesting that she's underage or at least like a lot younger than Michael, because the only way they refer to her is the girl right? the entire way through the book. And that really bothered me because I think he also just doesn't develop female characters at all outside of Kay and mm. to a certain extent, Mrs. Corleone, which is kind of fun. I like her as the female Italian New York mother, but even still, she's quite a stereotype. So mm. I think Kay is really the only person who gets a background, but Apollonia specifically, I just felt very robbed about you know what yeah, I mean? like yeah. Oh, yeah. like michael's supposed to have this thunderstruck moment where he falls in love with her immediately so she's obviously beautiful you have a death thunderbolt <laughs> yeah <laughs> many times you hear that during the book oh my god but yeah it just feels like she is only there to like dangle this other life in front of michael and say like this is what he could have had but he yeah. got pulled back and it's just like it's just disappointing that she gets nothing but a gruesome murder at the yeah. end of her life. Like poor woman. <laughs> In the book, they say they must say that Michael has got the thunderbolt at least fifteen times. Like yeah, that, Fabrizio. annoying. <laughs> it's so bad. I think they preview like, oh, you're gonna get hit by the thunderbolt, and they're like, oh, you got hit by the thunderbolt. You know, <laughs> this is not. This is the laziest writing I've ever read. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're right. Yeah, it's like. Yeah, it's like one day you might see a lady and get that on the phone. It's like, oh, there she is. Yeah, that's that's exactly how it happens. And I guess we can hit on another point where Puzo is, uh, he, I think he could have a good career writing like exotic fan fiction because he really gets into the sexual part of, well, I guess sex. Uh, like, yeah, you, you're right. Sorry, I interrupted you there, but I think that's dead right. It does read like fanfic, like some very erotic fanfic for the godfather sometimes yeah yeah especially in the beginning when he's describing sunny's uh, affair with whatever her name is uh, lucy yeah I, that's lucy, uh, lucy manzini i believe you pulled that one out <laughs> that's i out of nowhere i think it was the cut that had an article on like i'm pretty sure maybe it was a cut maybe it was another group but they had a very they had a very long piece on the ridiculous character of Lucy Mancini and her arc throughout this being perhaps the most untalked about ridiculous piece of American literature. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. can see where they're coming from with that. Yeah, I mean. Yeah, but yeah. when he's talking about their sexual encounter at the wedding, 
goes into deep detail of like how like deep. she went de- yes <laughs> deep emphasis on the deep <laughs> of, like deep. how she's like feeling warmth that she's about to orgasm and like how he like injects his fluid i'm like jesus christ i'm like this is intense here yeah it's i'm I'm taking my headphones out i'm physically uncomfortable (laughs) even hearing it it's just like (laughs) (laughs) well and it's it's a lot i mean i think overall like every single female in the book is depicted as either a slut or a virgin which is very religious centric ideals and like very roman catholicism like they're all from italy and i think that's just sort of like the roles that females are fit into and there were so many moments where i was almost laughing because i know that mario puzo was a failed novelist before this book and i'm like a yeah i get why (laughs) b like why why wasn't this edited as much as it should have been like why didn't someone step in and say like this just doesn't have to be in here. It's just, it's like kind of upsetting. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I think it almost speaks to a book that wasn't expected to be successful and was, if that makes sense. Like, um, totally. Oh, we could edit it, but that's a lot of investment. And we don't think this is going to necessarily pan out. So uh, it's like, I've heard, have not read, I have heard that later sequels as books are much tighter. So who knows? But I think you like, there is one female character that gets a tragic but Connie's character arc is... Yes. If you want to talk about, like, a tragic story, you actually, if you if you want to talk about it, like, if you follow it narratively, like, we meet Connie at her wedding. We carry the book through as there's power struggles and her, her father's uh, killed. And we end the movie with the murder of her husband, who's abusive. So there's a lot of, like, really toxic feeling, a series of toxic feelings in there. And... Her uh, actually, if you actually think about this, it's as all of those elements of tragedy. Her husband, who, ha- who helped murder her brother, is then killed by her other brother. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Ooh, that's a lot. And so, it, you know, Connie, Connie gets like a lot of character development, but it's all very tragic and it's stuck in neutral. If that makes sense, she in the second movie gets a much more interesting character arc, and I would say it's more. It's a completion in many ways of this first piece. Like you're basically ending this movie with all of the damage being done and not seeing any of like the the after effects of it, which really tumble out throughout the second movie where she's basically striking back at Michael by hurting herself in, in, in all sorts of ways, whether physical or emotional or relationship-based. It's, it's just a, it's a sad train wreck. Oh, that's, that is really sad. I completely forgot about Connie um, again, because I think I'm just like, too new to the material to remember everything but that is so tragic that like she's completely written off because she's not a male member of the family right and so she becomes this like collateral damage of like her husband is completely useless in fact does harm to the family and then even though he's abusive like we know now that even if you're in an abusive relationship, you can have very complex feelings toward your abuser. And so even though he's beating her with a belt while she's pregnant, which is a very upsetting scene in the movie, um, that I think was like one of the most traumatic scenes for me to watch. Like that's still her husband. And like without him, it's hard to know what her next move is because for the most part, women are, or were 
very restricted to like what their husbands were doing or could do. And if they were widowed, like what are your options? Yeah, what a tragic, (laughs) what another tragic female character. I'm interested to see part two then because I haven't seen part two. And we, yeah, sorry. We, part two is one of those rare things. It's like a truly rare thing in that it's, it's an equal to its predecessor. We probably don't even need to, but it's so interesting because the first movie is completely linear in terms of its structure. And the second one is completely not. And they're both just beautiful movies. The way that one echoes the other, but doesn't retread, if that makes any sense. Well, because Danny told me that in the book, it's, you know, it's, broken into like five books and book three is the background on the godfather which is not in the first movie it's in part two Mm -hmm. so i think that you could still get a lot out of i again i want to see part two just to see that completion of the story but i heard part three is not worth watching i haven't seen the remastered recut one but i've heard that it it gets a little bit better with that but um francis ford coppola really wanted to make part one and sort of really wanted to make part two but really wanted a commercial success like wanted a big win and then he was just rich, right? And he decided he was going to make all these movies that he wanted to make. And he made a bunch of them. And then he made The Cotton Club. And he thought it was going to be just massive. And it's got, like, so much time spent with Richard Gere, like, playing a piano. And, like, it's a disaster of a movie. Uh, some people love it. I think it's a disaster. Lots of people think it's a disaster. And it cost him so much money. And so... He was. He went to Paramount. He's like, I'm sorry. What are we gonna do? And they said, You're gonna make The Godfather three. And he said, Okay, fine. We'll we, we can do that. Interesting. So he went ahead and he made it. And he's been trying. He tried to fix it. I, I don't know how successful he was, but he managed to get the whole gang back together for it. Yeah, I have not seen the remaster of Part Three either. I think it's a shame that you kind of put it well. Like the studio is just like. You're gonna make this, or else things are gonna happen, Francis. <laughs> and his career is just fascinating to me because he. Oh, I want to correct something to Laura. I said to her when we watched the movie at the horse head scene in the background. There's an Oscar there, and and Laura was like, "Oh, I bet that was Francis Ford Coppola's Oscar." And I said, "Oh, at this point, Coppola hadn't won Best Picture yet or, or Best Director, so that couldn't have been his Oscar." I totally forgot before this movie came out, he won best screenplay for a patent. He wrote patents. Aha. So uh, apologize, Laura, that that very well could have been his Oscar. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So I apologize for that retroactively. Thank you. He's a, he's a Renaissance man. He's a, you know, and I, I, as you were saying, like, you're not going to like the way things are going with like Paramount kind of clapping their hands together, being like, come, Come here, you 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 owe us one. And I was just thinking, like, what would they threaten? They're gonna be like, Francis, if you don't make this happen, that winery of yours, it's just gone. Yeah. <laughs> what a better place the world would be if they'd done that. <laughs> oh, I was gonna say I should have gotten a bottle for this episode, but we've been spending money on the wedding, so <laughs> yeah, we're, we're we're stocking up on alcohol because our wedding venue can uh, you we can provide our own, so. Yeah. Nice. yeah, so all of my wine money is going to the coffers rather than my belly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. That's the way to do it. Keep prioritizing ruthlessly. Right. But yeah, the third one's a mess. 
The second and first, though, are just like fantastic. I think one of the things that I wanted to touch on, and I feel like we have to touch on, is um, the portrayal of some of the protagonists in the book versus the movie. And I think we started talking about this at the top, but like the Don is described as a physically squat kind of small man in who's fat and looks like, I think they describe him as somebody who would come be a handyman on your house <laughs> at various points in time. And it's very interesting to see how different the movie decided to go with it. Because I think well, if you cast Marlon Brando, he's going to have a physical prowess to him. So, but he just kind of, he glides through all the spaces he's in and just sort of has, he's a, he's a sucking sound. He's just power vacuum in terms of space he takes up. And I think that's just, that's really unique to see such a departure in terms of casting and in terms of, but in, in many ways, it still reflects like how much those artistic casting choices can make in terms of the tone and the setting and the way things are perceived. If you cast different people in these roles, would the movie be any good? I think maybe, but I don't think it'd be anywhere near what it is. I completely agree. There's that, those famous stories about how Paramount, they didn't want Brando or Pacino and Coppola and the producers had to beg the Paramount execs to get these two people in there. And what a, what a, what a prize, what a great decision that was. Brando, you know, one of the most iconic parodied performances of all time. I I mean, I did it at at the start, but you just can't, it's just so unique. It's so the Godfather and it, it's so famous that it even overrides the source material. Well, I was going to say to Charlie's point, there's nothing in the book that suggests that he acts the way he does in the movie. Yeah. Like you said, he's even physically described different. So that's fully either Brando's vision or maybe it was Coppola's vision, but it brings so much to the character, just interest, you know, like he's this, he's not just, your normal run-of-the-mill mafia boss like yeah he is gregarious but also soft-spoken at the same time intimidating but also feels very gentle eccentric but an everyday man it's a bunch of these contradictions that he's able to pull off it's kind of crazy and you can totally see him how he has led this family for this many years. And I guess you could argue that his softness and his kindness is what led him to get into the whole Solozzo situation. Of course, he was always going to deny Solozzo's request to go into the drug business. But the argument could be made that maybe he should have handled it better, that he knew that if he was going to deal with these people, that trouble was going to come. I mean, of course, he can't predict the future, but an argument could be made that maybe he was a little too friendly and flippant with these people, right? Whereas Michael, on the other hand, is brutal, cunning, black and white, you crossed me, you're dead type of deal. And Tom points that out, right? He tells him that's not the right move. You know it's going to come back. Like, you know that in 10 years, this is, if you want to get on top of the game and control what's going on, you need to get in now. But- you got to remember, like, sorry, and I'm going to go back to the casting just here for a second, because I think it's so interesting to mention, and I, I'm I'm hoping we can clip this together, but they didn't want Francis Ford Coppola for this movie originally. They didn't even want him scribing it. They wanted uh, Sergio Leone to do this. And he was like, no, nah, I've got this once upon a time in America thing I'm working on. It's going to take me 15 years. Don't worry about it. But they wanted him. And then I can't remember who the second one was, but like 
Francis Ford Coppola was like third on the list. Francis Ford Coppola had very little in terms of directing credit to his name at this point in time. And I, I just, I had to look this up because I couldn't remember. They wanted, they didn't want Al Pacino, who's unknown at the time. They wanted Robert Redford, was the number one person they wanted to cast in the role. Interesting. Yeah, very American, not Italian at all <laughs> actor. Yeah. And I wonder how that would have played. And they really didn't want, they really, really, really didn't want Marlon Brando or Lawrence Olivier. Those were the two that, that Francis Ford Coppola was like, both of those would be acceptable. And they were like, no, they're both difficult. They wanted this guy, and I had to look it up because the name was escaping me. They wanted Ernest Borgnine, who I have never heard of in my life. Oh, was he a classic movie villain? Yeah. Oh, I he think played... he was in uh, The Dirty Dozen, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, Marty. He was in Marty, that classic movie that won Best Picture. I don't think I've seen that. So put this guy in as the godfather, and maybe you have something that comes closer to the book. Mm. Yeah, that's... <laughs> I mean, maybe the visual look, but yeah, I cannot. Marlon Brando is so iconic that I just can't. Yeah. Interesting. That's the a trouble with talking about a, something as classic as this, is that these actors are so ingrained in, into the roles and the legacy that to picture anyone else physically f feels weird. Brandon, I mean, you talked a little about about Duvall, Robert Duvall before, but he, I can't, yeah. couldn't imagine anyone else being Tom Hagen, kind of the steadfast, solemn Tom Hagen, who, yes, wasn't the best wartime... Uh, Consigliere. Uh, sure, <laughs> sure. Mm -hmm. uh, but he also, he wasn't negligent. He just was out of his depth slightly, but he was smart enough to know what Michael was doing at the end and how he kind of had to play along a little bit and... He was initially shocked about being kicked out, but of course he comes back in another way. So yeah, no one else could have pulled that complex role off. The perpetual outsider, I should say, at, at like Duval. Definitely. I wonder, yeah, I mean, this, this is me thinking out loud, so shoot me down if you want. But I'm kind of thinking about it being a no country for old men situation where I think Tom Hagen knew that strategically getting into the drug game was smart. But he possibly, like, they kept saying, you're not a good wartime consigliere. And I wonder if that was just because, like, this is, like, a new brand of violence or a new brand of yeah. strategy, I mm. guess. Family strategy that he had never come up against. And so that was a reason that he needed to take a step back. And, like, with Michael taking a step forward, he was sort of part of that understanding, that, like, younger understanding of what, to what level the other families were going to start going to, to win power. Yeah, no, I well well said because that's a great take on the character, and Puzo should be credited for creating this character who is part of the family but will never be blood, obviously. Right. And as what keeps on showing up time and time again, especially Michael says this in the movie, is that it all all stays in the family. It's all about the family, and even someone like Kay, who's married to Michael will never be his top priority because he's just, she's not blood. Mm -hmm. So th that's another thing. Oh, yeah, Diane Keaton, we should mention, great performance from her. I believe this was one of her first movies. She looks so young. Uh, she was just out of uh, college, I think, when she was doing this, if memory is. Wow. wow. She's one of my favorite actresses. She's been in a lot of my favorite movies. So to watch her in this was really fun. Yeah, she's great in it. She, you know, obviously... 
she has the tough role of the audience surrogate. Mm -hmm. I think when at the end, the final scene, when she asks Michael if he killed Carlo and she's and he says no, he lies to her, and she's like, Oh, thank God. At first you're like, No, come on, Kay, obviously he's lying. But then the look she gives him as the door's closing on her, again, the second visual cue that Michael is shutting her out. The look in Diane Keaton's face perfectly shows what she's thinking about how she knows that Michael actually most likely killed Carlo. I mean, it's just just from one look, an amazing, uh, amazing revelation. So and one of the best final shots in movie history. Looks like she was cast in this when she was 24, acted in it when she was 25. So wow, that that's crazy. Yeah, 1971. Yeah. Even in the 70s of movies, it was just so much faster than it is now. This shot in 71 and yeah. it was released in 72. And it was a big hit. I think the number is it hit 130 million, which was the highest grossing movie of 1972. I believe at the time it was one of the highest grossing movies ever next to the Ten Commandments. <laughs> and adjusted for inflation, I think it's the 25th highest grossing movie of all time, wow. which is crazy. I mean, obviously it's a popular movie, but, you know, it's a, a three hour mob epic. Like, that's crazy that it's there. And so it released in 1972 and then he shot part two. But part two took so long to edit that in between that time, he made the conversation with Gene Hackman. Yep. And that was released at the same time part two was that was also nominated for best picture did not win wow. and then five years later he makes apocalypse now which we already had an F episode on but that's also i mean that basically took him five years to make but yeah it, it, crazy at the speed that films were released mm -hmm. um one final fun fact i wanted to mention was we talked about john kazale and yeah. he has, yeah, so he was in five films. He, he was gone too soon, died of cancer. But he was in, The Godfather was his first movie, correct? I, I don't know if it was his first, it might have been his first movie. He was a stage actor, famous New York stage actor. Yeah, I think, so he starred in five movies, all five movies nominated for Best Picture. So The Godfather, <laughs> The Conversation, Godfather Part Two, Dog Dear Day Hunter. Afternoon. And then, yeah, Deer Hunter, both Godfathers and the Deer Hunter won Best Picture. So out of five films he starred in, all five nominated for Best Picture, three of them won. A crazy wow. statistic. Crazy. So what? there's Dog Day Afternoon, the two Godfather movies, Deer Hunter. What am I missing? I'm missing something. What's the... The Conversation. The Conversation, which I, I have not seen. Ooh. Yeah. Recommend oh, that. Yeah? Filing that away. <laughs> Honestly, though, like... He and the thing is, is that I think he was, I think he had done 15, 20 years of theater before this, before he shows up in this. So he was a long time theater actor. Like it started young, fantastic in this movie. There are these scenes in The Godfather 2 that he plays and these conversations between him and Pacino where as someone with siblings, like the relaxed nature that sometimes occurs when you're just like hanging out, like the two of them in Cuba having a beer at like a small stand in the afternoon it, there's just like this relaxed completely natural behavior going on behind them and i know that they were friends from their time in theater like pacino and Casal knew each other really well and i think that just comes through so beautifully and later later on but yeah died so young so so young can you remind me who he plays i'm uh, sorry fredo. fredo okay sorry yeah. yeah i didn't put that together but wow that's incredible 
he doesn't get a ton in this movie, but he gets so much in the next movie. He gets some in this movie. Like he gets crying on the on the on the street corner on the on the actual edge of the of the uh the curb of the street. Gun still in. Does he still have his gun in his hand? They don't have him like. Do I think he drops it? Yeah, he he fumbles it. He yeah. fumbles it, but he picks it back up, and I think he's like crying in his trench coat with his arms hunched. Oh. Yeah, there's just like some of those visual cues that you have throughout this are like later on, you know, Mikey, that's, this is, this is Las Vegas. You don't talk to Mo Green like that. He does get some, some stuff to work with, but in the second movie, he just gets so much more. And it does bring me back to this concept that you were mentioning around blood, right? And it's really interesting if you think about it, like Michael invests so much of his time in talking about the importance of blood and how, you know, people that marry in or people that aren't family, you, you can't fully trust. And I, I've, not to spoil it too much, but like the biggest betrayals of his entire life are from blood. That's got to be a shattering piece for him in terms of what it, he's created loyalty to. Yeah. And it's really interesting that probably the most loyal people to him this entire time wound up being Tom Hagen. Um, you know, that's, that's not Okay, so yes, that's really interesting. So when I was reading, I thought the bait and switch was going to be that Tom Hagen had sold out The Godfather. And I actually was ready for that to be the end of the book. Like when they're mm -hmm. talking, when Tom has a conversation with Michael and they're talking about like, oh, whoever comes up basically is like the Judas who comes up and says like, oh, Solozzo, or no, the Taglieri family wants to talk, isn't it? Tatalia. What is the other? Tatalia family like wants to talk. Whoever says that to you and is ready to make up the meeting is the person who sold you out. And when he's telling Tom that, I was like, oh, shit, what if that happens with one of those other guys, but it's actually Tom? And then when that didn't happen, I was like, oh, that might have been a missed opportunity. Like, what if it had been Tom pulling the strings the whole time? Oh, but... that would have been. <laughs> <laughs> but they kept making such a big deal about how blood is, you know, who yeah. you trust. And Tom wasn't blood. And there were a couple of times where he kind of got snubbed. And I was like, in a lot of ways, like, I know he owes allegiance to the family because they picked him up off the street. But at the same time, he's not blood. So I don't know. The whole time I was waiting for something to be Tom Hagen's plan, his whole plot. But no. But I, anyway, I loved his his character. And I think you're right. Like, he goes to show that blood isn't necessarily the only indicator of who's going to be loyal to you. Yeah. <sighs> Amen. Well, we could talk about this for a lot longer maybe maybe we'll have you on for part two of godfather part two but mm -hmm. in a few seasons yeah <laughs> yeah um so charlie your final thoughts if you have any and your final rating for both the book and the movie um Ooh. out of four stars out of four stars yeah um final thoughts i think i you know i think it's fairly described as a seminal piece of american cinema I, I think that's a completely fair description. I think it's iconically shot and is is like one of those movies that it was a period piece when it was made and it continues to be a fantastic period piece. So I think completely worth watching. I would give it, not to get cute with the stars, but 3.75 stars, maybe a close to four stars. I'd say four stars. Let's just go with four. And book, I would give a one out of four stars. Um, a, maybe that's a little high. It's, it's got it's got some good dialogue occasionally, um, but it also has some really troubling stuff. Um, so yeah, that's, that's my rating. Awesome. Lore? 
I'm not going to stray too far from those ratings. I think with the book, I've run into this in the past with Lolita, where I'm like, if anyone asked me if I would like, oh, should I read this book? I would just flat out say no, like, don't waste your time. I, th- I think I agree. There's some good dialogue, but outside and the skeleton of the story is interesting. But overall, there's just so much upsetting stuff, like how women are treated, how, how minorities are degraded and, you know, downplayed. It's just, there's just so much upsetting stuff that I would never tell anyone to go read it. So I would say, yeah, one star is probably the highest I could go. It's not the lowest I could go, but we'll throw out a star for um, it being responsible for generating this movie. I don't know if I'm a huge fan of the movie. I think just because it's well-regarded and I understand why I'm going to give it a three out of four. I did enjoy the whole mafia theme and the dialogue is great. The acting is incredible. The cinematography is wonderful. The directing is wonderful. So for all of those reasons, I'm giving it a three out of four, but I'm going to watch more Rust Development episodes before I watch this movie again. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. A nice palate cleanser. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. along those lines. The second one is worth watching and there's, They at one point in time did create a sequential filming of The Godfather that was on TNT. I think it was like six hours. Wow. Maybe we'll try that. But yeah, we're definitely going to check out part two. Yeah. For me, yeah, the book, it's such a shame that Puzo essentially sabotages his own masterpiece because the story is great one of the best stories you know in terms of mob stories but there are all these diatribes all these non sequiturs that are so weird and sexist and he's argued in the past that the reason he included all the racist stuff was to show how italians thought of minorities which is a fair point but he doesn't make a good enough case that this is what the characters think not me mario puzo thinks he keeps on hitting the same point over and over that's like are you racist yeah are you saying (laughs) yeah yeah like it's not coming out of a character's mouth it's coming out of like in context yeah right exactly (laughs) this is where i'm coming from. so i i agree with both of you he should be praised for the story for the skeleton but everything else is uh, terrible so uh, yeah one stars all around Uh, it's a bunch of one stars (laughs) so yeah, yikes, uh, Mario. But uh, yeah, but the movie though, I mean, I, I hate to be that guy, but yeah, four to four for me, one of the best movies ever made. I respect your opinion of three stars. I respectfully disagree, uh, but hey, where art is subjective. All right, well, Charlie, wow. Yeah. I, yeah. I sh- I'm sure you have to get back to um, all your responsibilities that uh, fatherhood holds but yeah i'm looking out at the window at my son who's throwing apple slices around (laughs) so i uh i should probably uh, get back to that awesome (laughs) well charlie thank you again so much you're uh such a a great ally and a fellow cinephile love talking films with you this was a pleasure so thank you yeah it was great to meet you great insights thank you for sharing your insights with me because i don't have a lot of them about this so no no i i i'm a i'm a movie guy um i am more of a i like to watch movies guy rather than talk about movies guy but i i do love my i will keep my instagram conversation going uh Regardless of film, by the way, if you haven't seen, I what was the what was the last movie that we were talking about? No, you actually did see it. Sound of Metal. Sound of Metal. Yeah, yeah, Charlie. 
I saw it and I loved it. And over the next couple of weeks, it's become uh, my favorite movie of 2020. I love it. I can't stop talking about it. Yes, it's uh, incredible film. Incredible. It actually reminds yeah. me a lot of um, of Million Dollar Baby. There's just like an uncomfortable, unexpected narrative throughout the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Completely agree. All right. Well, thanks for listening. Follow us on Instagram at Film is Lit Pod, and we'll see you next week when we cover The Prisoner of Azkaban. Ooh. Yay! All right. We'll see you on the next one. Bye.